The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. Things may sound a little different today as we're staying at home and recording remotely, so we hope you'll bear with us for the next little while. A lot of you will be staying at home as well, so we'd like to hear from you wherever you are in the world. How is lockdown changing your reading life? What books do you turn to when you're cooped up indoors? If you have any tips of your own, email us at books.podcast at theguardian.com and help us to build up a global picture. This week we talk to historian Greg Jenner about the history of celebrity and whether they're anything more than a waste of space. And later, we'll be discussing great works written in isolation with rare books expert Adam Douglas. Greg Jenner has spent the last decade as historical consultant on the BBC's award-winning Horrible Histories series. His enthusiasm for the past has made him a familiar figure on radio, television and podcasts, with appearances on chat shows, documentaries and as presenters of the You're Dead to Me podcast. In 2015, he published A Million Years in a Day, which explores the origins of the rituals which make up daily life. Now he's back with Dead Famous, a joyous romp through the history of celebrity from Edmund Keane to Gertrude Stein and from Grace Darling to W.G. Grace. But is a celebrity anything more than someone who is famous for being famous? When Greg came into the studio, Richard began by asking why a celebrity historian wanted to write a history of celebrity. Oh, God, I'm not a celebrity historian. Oh. I mean, that's immediately out of the gate. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw down. But it um, said it in the newspapers. It must be true. Oh, this is a. Th- I mean, it's really, really weird when people say, "Oh, you're a celebrity." It's like, no, no, I'm not, <laughs> and I've written a book to prove it. Um, Hopefully, I am a sort of historian with some sort of public profile. I'll, I'll accept that. Okay. But celebrity is a very specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, because people have been famous or at least you know, yeah. renowned or whatever throughout history. I mean, think about Socrates or Shakespeare Absolutely. or Catherine the Great. But you put the beginning of celebrity at around the beginning of the 1700s. Why? Yeah. Well, there are lots of sort of complicated, fun reasons. Um, the simple ones, really, is that... I divide fame and celebrity and renown and glory into separate categories and they're overlapping and they can coexist and they still coexist now. So sort of my most controversial point in the book perhaps is I argue that David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough is not a celebrity, he is renowned. And I get a lot of people go, ooh, that's a a hot take. But the truth is is that we don't know anything about his private life. I don't know anything about his private life, I don't know anything about his family, I don't know anything about his, his views on any issue other than animals and climate change. That's all I know about him. And yet he is one of the most iconic, most revered, most respected people in the country. So famous, but not famous, a celebrity. Famous, but not a celebrity. So go on, what is it? What is a celebrity? So, well, it's fascinating, actually, because when I sat down to write this book four years ago, it's taken me four years to write it because it's so complicated and more... I was very naive. I thought this would be straightforward. really wasn't. A celebrity is actually a hard thing to pin down. Lots of scholars have tried, and they've all had really good efforts at sort of trying to work it out, but none of them agree with each other. So when I sat down to write it, I had to come up with my own definition so that I could then go looking for a kind of historical birth moment, a sort of an antecedent where you can kind of go, well, that's a celebrity, or that's not a celebrity. Okay, there is the starting point. So for me, in my world... And, it's, it, you know, this is the thing. It's quite nerve-wracking because you have to sort of stand up and go, right, this is what I reckon. This is it. Uh, I think celebrity has a five-point checklist. And if you don't hit all five, you're not a celebrity. So for me, those five are you've got to be, you've got to have a unique personality, something about you that's identifiably you, no one else can copy. You've got to be known to strangers, lots of strangers. 
you are known to strangers through the work of mass media, through the kind of reproduction of your image and name and identity. In newspapers, television, yeah. podcasts, all that stuff. Yeah, essentially print culture initially, but obviously these days, you know, we have audio culture and, and visual and all that kind of stuff. But in the 18th century, yes, it's essentially it's engravings and prints and people writing about you and so forth. Uh, so far, David Attenborough's all there. He's, he's, yeah. he's got charisma for sure. sure. He's widely and, known. Yeah. We know him off the telly, yeah, so absolutely. he's still there. Yeah, so so yeah. that, then what? So... Where he falls down, poor David, <laughs> um, is point four. And point four is that there has to be a public fascination with your private life, with a celebrity's private life, in which their life is consumed as dramatic entertainment. So that the things that you do are obviously of, of significance, but it's who you are that also becomes a fascination. Your own life story. Your life story becomes a human soap opera. And, and that part of that life story disseminated again by mass media. Uh, precisely. Mm -hmm. And and there is you know a, a, a desire to know more about the individual, uh, uh, who they're hanging out with, who they're sleeping with, um, who are they feuding with, all those sorts of things, as well as their work. Mm -hmm. So what's different to Renown, Renown is where you are known, possibly incredibly famously known for your work, but we have renowned doctors like Robert Winston. Or we have renowned broadcasters. But we don't know anything about their private life and we're not going to pay money to hear about their holiday to Marbella and we don't want to see them in a bikini. I mean, maybe we do. I don't know. I mean, maybe David Attenborough looks fantastic in a two-piece. Now you've but... raised that thought. <laughs> um, but that is a crucial thing. That Point four really is where renown and celebrity divide because point four is that we're obsessed with the idea of people as essentially almost scripted characters. We follow their adventures as if they were soap opera characters. And the fifth point backs this up, and the fifth point is where there is a commercial economy attached to the desire to know about these people. And that commercial economy doesn't just give celebrities an income, doesn't just let them charge money for access to what they do, but actually there are other people who can make money from the celebrities. You can exploit a celebrity's name to make money for yourself. Money so you, off the back of that off personal Off the back of that story. person, exactly. Yeah. So that you end up with a, a subsidiary industry, which is gossip journalism, paparazzi, um, editors, bloggers, T-shirt makers, all sorts of people. And that's not to say that celebrity culture is a sort of horrible, venal, nasty thing. It doesn't have to be. But celebrity culture is when people become famous they are thrust into the limelight a fascination kicks in with their private life as well as what they might be doing professionally and other people then go we can make money or we can boost our own brand by hitching our wagon to this person and so that's why it's the 1700s because before that Precisely. there wasn't a mass media that could, could yeah let this get going absolutely and there are other historians who've had a look at this and some of them have made interesting arguments going earlier than me they you know there are a couple of classicists um who said, oh, celebrity existed in Roman Greece. And you go, well, maybe. I mean, there are certainly really iconic, famous people of the time. But I don't think there is that mass media marketplace. There's a different thing going There's on. There's a different thing. So, OK, just to get it straight in our heads, give us some people we may have heard of mm. who aren't celebrities and indeed some people who we have heard of who are. OK, so I would argue that classical fame, and we get the word fame from Pharma, the Roman goddess, who was a monster. She was a terrifying beast. She was giant, huge. She was covered in eyes, mouths and tongues. And she sort of stalked the landscape and pursued people. And she is described by Virgil, the poet. And she would basically, supposedly, you know, she's not real, but she would <laughs> supposedly hunt people down like Cicero, uh, Julius Caesar. Um, obviously, we have Greek people like Herostratus. Herostratus wanted to be famous, didn't have any skills or talent, so he decided to burn down a very famous temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. So his desire for fame, 
is now known as Herostratus syndrome. It's where people who unfortunately aren't very well will kill a celebrity in order to become famous themselves. And we have people like that who are famous. They are incredibly well-known. Julius Caesar was incredibly well-known. His face is on the coinage. He's on statues all over the place. Everyone in the empire, well, it wasn't even an empire yet. Everyone in the Republic knew who he was. But there isn't evidence for a commercial economy. So that is not celebrity. There is not necessarily evidence for a commercial economy with Shakespeare. Some historians think maybe there might have been. I don't agree with them, but it's a really interesting case study. Nell Gwynne in the 1680s, she is the actress, she is the mistress to Charles II. She's really famous. People really, really like her. She's funny, she's witty, she's saucy. Um, Samuel Pepys has a nude portrait of her hung over his office at the Admiralty. She is on the verge of celebrity, but we don't have sufficient evidence for her brand being disseminated through the country. We've got a kind of small pocket of people gossiping about her. We've got some poetry. We've got a few sort of fancy paintings, but they are not being reproduced and sold widely. There isn't a mass market. There's not a mass market. There's a small coterie of people kind of going, ooh, Nell Gwynne. So I think she is on the cusp. I think she's, she's nearly there, but not quite. I believe Celebrity arrives in about uh, 1709 is my earliest. And he's a very unexpected celebrity. He's called Dr. Henry Sacheverell. And he is a sort of grumpy theologian. He's, <laughs> he's, he's not your kind of, you know, your beauteous hunk who takes their top off and has great abs. He is this sort of right-wing, conservative um, Anglican minister who complains about the government being too liberal uh, on the Church of England and gives this speech in St Paul's Cathedral and divides the nation down the middle. And can you imagine a nation divided down the middle? <laughs> Honestly. Um, but this is 1709, this is 310 years ago, and he becomes a celebrity. People buy souvenirs with his face on them. They, there are riots in the street called the Sacheverell riots, you know, supporters pro and against. Um, he is paraded through the street with bodyguards. You can buy jugs with his face on it. You can buy um, ladies' fans, tobacco pipes. Uh, people name their pubs after him. They name their children after him. And the papers are full of it. Exactly. I mean, newspapers are a brand new thing um, in terms of daily newspapers. 1702 is the first daily newspaper. You've had papers beforehand in the 17th century, but the daily newspaper arrives. And one of the reasons that it arrives is that in 1695, you have the lapsing of the Licensing Act, which had kind of controlled free speech. The king, Charles II in particular, had come down like a ton of bricks on free expression because of the consequences of the British civil wars, um, what we tend to call the, sort of the wars of the three kingdoms, you know. But this lapsing of that law allows for more freedom of expression. And you also get what's called the public sphere arriving. Uh, Jürgen Habermas, the um, German philosopher, argued that in the early 1700s, the public becomes aware of its own nature as a public. They become aware that they are part of a wider society and they want to join in chatting about it, gossiping, talking. Now, Habermas was rather high-minded and he thought people wanted to know about trade and finance and war and high politics. The thing is, you then go and read the kind of early newspapers, the, the, sort of the sheets, the printed culture, the songs, the ballads, the poetry. You look at the engravings. People are interested more in who's duelling with who, <laughs> who's sleeping with who, who's fallen out with their lover, which duke has been spotted with, you know, some courtesan. Um, what what they want is a mug with this guy's face on yeah, it. Yeah, they want, to, uh, and they want to own the imagery too. People want to own an engraving of David Garrick, who's this great superstar of the theatre in the 1740s and 50s. They want to own the possession of an image of someone and hang it up on their wall and gaze upon it. And we also get fan culture in the 1700s. You know, there are these fantastic rivalries between actresses who are both going for the same part. And their fans sort of meet 
and boo and hiss each other <laughs> and 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 take their complaints to the theatre. They they try and leverage their sort of fan power as a as a blob as a big mass of people to try and convince theatre empresarios to mount a play with their preferred star. And this is happening, you know, 300 years ago. Um, we also have the CLAC, and the CLAC is a professional clapping organisation. You can hire them to applaud your play, or you can hire them to boo someone else's play. So Voltaire, the French philosopher and historian and playwright, he hires the CLAC to boo his rival <laughs> and to cheer his play. So there are professional fans as well. You can pay them to come along and give you the the kind of fake generational sort of sense of that the public is on your side and everywhere everywhere people are selling papers off the back of this they're yeah. selling fans lit- I mean, literal fans literal as well, fans and, yeah. and mugs and, and engravings and all this and it's, it's it, and this is all off the back of this i mean is this marketization this yeah this this fact that we've uh, we've been sold stuff does this part of the thing that leads to the inevitable backlash well, it can do yeah i mean backlashes are really interesting ideas but what are backlashes for why do we have backlashes um we have some really great examples of, of backlashes that are really quite early on. I mean, perhaps the most iconic one I can think of is is Master Betty, mm. who you probably haven't heard of, but he was a huge star in 1804. He was a child actor. He was about 12 years old, and he was um, uh, English originally, but I think grew up in Ireland. And he ended up touring... Uh, Ireland, Scotland, England and this is the time where the Napoleonic Wars are happening and there's a real kind of tension people are very nervous about Napoleon invading and he sort of serves as this relief this kind of, um, I don't know what the word is really but he's there as a kind of pressure valve I suppose and people get really really obsessive with him and they're crying and weeping and they're fighting to get into the theatre on his opening night in London People pull out pistols to try and get the best seats. They are smashing up the balustrades. Uh, Soldiers have to be called in on the second night. A woman is killed in Liverpool. She's crushed to death. This 12-year-old boy who's come out of nowhere is put up as this icon of of genius. But there is a backlash. You know, there are some poets. uh, Lee Hunt is a famous romantic poet who sort of goes, this is ridiculous. We are losing our marbles here. We are absolutely going to pot you know the French are laughing at us they're mocking us because we're all obsessing about this kid I'm not even sure he can act he's 12 years old he's just standing there and reading stuff out so there is this backlash and within two years his career is over it has you know it's gone from incredible fame he's I mean the level of his fame is ridiculous the government call meeting short the cabinet office call meeting short to go and watch him perform um, his daily illnesses are reported in newspapers. He gets diarrhoea at one point, and it becomes like headline news. Not quite headline. They didn't have headlines back then, but like you know, <laughs> big front page front news. page news. And within two years, it's done. It's over. And you know, people have enjoyed pricking that balloon. They've enjoyed mocking him. The satirists enjoyed getting in there and saying, actually, he. Um, one of the sort of cruel things is that they said that he sounded more like a Juliet than a Romeo. <laughs> you know, he's a bit girly. So. There is already this sort of trolling culture. And is that because they've been they've been sold stuff? Is that because they bought stuff, or is that just because of that missing thing from your five points? The the question of talent. So he was talented. I mean, what, what's interesting about Lee Hunt is that Lee Hunt himself had also been a child star. He'd been this brilliant young poet who'd become famous as a teenager and had written this book of poetry uh, called Juvenalia, which was about him as a sort of young person finding their way. And so I think he was a little bit aware of what it was like to go through that himself and so I think his own interpretation was perhaps based on the fact that he'd been in the bubble and that was why he could see it more clearly maybe 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 he'd experienced it but there is also the question of talent what's really interesting now is I mean in 1961 Daniel J Borstin was a 
very famous American social critic who wrote this book called The Image, um, which is all about sort of the way in which spin had taken over American popular culture, the idea that, you know, nothing mattered anymore, everything was fake, politics was fake, entertainment was fake, advertising was fake, and he was complaining and saying people are just famous for being famous, which is this very famous phrase, you know, Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, they're famous for being famous. The thing is that people have been saying that in the 1780s, and we do have people like uh, Casanova, who, you know, many of us will know that name because he's famous now to us as a seducer, as, you know, this guy who slept his way around Europe, but he was desperate to be famous. He really wanted to be a celebrity, and his diaries and his, his memoir is his recording of his attempts to get famous. And he tries all sorts of paths. He doesn't just sort of say, right, I'm going to be famous by doing this one thing. He really is the sort of the guy who's like, right, I'll try this. Oh, that didn't work. I'll try this. You know, he gets involved in a sort of famous duel. He tries to sort of make himself a theologian or a conversationalist. He has a go at being a sort of fashion icon. He reports on other people being famous, and he himself tries to hunt fame down and essentially steal it for himself. And then you have people like Kitty Fisher, who's a courtesan. She's a high-class escort, essentially. You pay an awful lot of money to, to be her professional boyfriend, I suppose. And she doesn't have any talent, really, other than that she's beautiful and provocative and good at attracting column inches. She famously falls off her horse while wearing no knickers, and people are sort of scandalised, but it's a sort of promotional stunt. And she works with the greatest artist of the time, Joshua Reynolds, and he paints her several ways. And, and she takes control of her image and owns her sexuality and does jokes about it. You know, um, Reynolds paints her as Cleopatra dissolving a pearl in a cup of wine, which is this famous story from ancient, the ancient world of Cleopatra and Mark Antony having a bet about who could spend more money on a banquet. And Cleopatra takes this very, very big pearl and dissolves it in her glass of wine and, and glugs it down as a joke of going, look, I can drink it. I don't even have to spend it. <laughs> and Kitty Fisher is painted as that. She says, I'm a queen. I am Cleopatra. Look at all the money I can eat. And the reason she does that is because the famous story told is that one of her lovers leaves her a hundred pounds for a night and she doesn't think it's enough. So she eats it in a sandwich <laughs> as a mark of outrage. And then she has this painting done to say, look at me, I'm like queer, um, Cleopatra. That, I, yeah. I eat money because I don't even need it. I'm that wealthy. I'm that. So it's, a, it's the equivalent of sort of going on Instagram and, you know, lying on a bed of money or, or setting fire to it. It's, it's that kind of thing of showing off how wealthy you are. But if, if that's her only talent, I mean, if that's, you know, Kim Kardashian, if that's their only talent, why should we care? Why should we care about celebrities such a... I mean, it's such a crucial question. And the reason I wrote the book is because celebrity is so pervasive, so influential in society, so dominant in shaping who we are, who we want to be. When I began the book, I was a little bit snarky. I was going to be a little bit more, slightly more facetious and a bit more cheeky. And then I really, I mean, the, the truth is, is that I began researching the book in 2015, but I really started the book in January 2016. And I, there was a sort of curious irony or coincidence that the morning I began the book, literally the morning, David Bowie died and I'm not a huge Bowie aficionado but I was sort of aware that something sizable had just happened and I switched on the radio and Lauren Laverne who I really like listen to I love her show she dedicated her show to him and fans phoned in and it became a eulogy it became a three-hour eulogy where people phoned in talking about what David Bowie had meant to them and it wasn't just like you know people going oh, I really like his songs it's really good it was people saying David Bowie's music helped me identify who I was as a person, my gender, my sexuality, my views on life, my attitude towards my father or my brother. 
he had become this vessel through which a lot of people had experienced their own thoughts and feelings for the first time. And what I realised, you know, somewhat naively, actually, is that I'd gone into writing this book thinking, ah, oh, it'll be a bit of fun just to understand what celebrity is. And that morning I realised, OK, celebrity has a profundity to it. And it can be negative and it can be transgressive. It can be vacuous. You know, of course it can be. We all know the sort of superficiality of some of the people who maybe go on reality shows just to get famous. But the truth is that celebrity allows us in a lot of ways to express who we are as a society, who we are as individuals, who we want to be. And we talk about a lot of ethical and moral quandaries through the prism of individual celebrity stories. We talk about, you know, drink driving through um, Ant and Deck. I can't remember which one it was. Who, <laughs> I think it was, maybe it was Ant. I think it was Ant McPartlin. Uh, we talk about drug culture through, you know, sort of rock and roll musicians, certainly in the 90s, you know, that kind of... Um, there was heroin chic in the 90s. We talked about the ethics of that. We talk about body image. We talk about um, mental health issues. We talk about sexuality and gender. Um, seen through these lives, through these personal seen stories. Seen through these lives. And what celebrity does is that it pushes boundaries. It's transgressive. It's, it's by definition, to be interesting, you sort of have to push against the rules a little bit. And celebrity culture is a constant novelty it's a sort of endless firework display of new things just constantly constantly going and we kind of go ooh ah at all the new celebrities but what celebrity culture does is it it pushes at the edges of what is acceptable in order to be interesting in order to be novel and exciting and in every, order to sell stuff in order to sell stuff and to uh, grab our attention and every now and then celebrities will move the boundary because they'll overstep the mark and will either punish them and cancel them in the modern internet parlance. You know, well, you're cancelled. You've done something that we find heinous and, and not objectionable. Or they'll overstep the mark and we'll go, oh, the mark was in the wrong place. Actually, we're okay with this. We're fine with this. Let's move the mark. So you say that celebrities are something that binds us together in some sense. Yeah, it does. But and it can divide us too. You know, Henry Sasha overall in 1709 divided the nation. You were either with him or against him. Um, he was a conservative theologian who divided the nation and his fans you know, loved him and turned him into a sort of political martyr. He helped determine the result of the election in 1710, he, you know, landslide win for the Tories. So you know, the idea of Hugh Grant telling people to vote Labour, everyone was like, oh, modern celebrity. It's like, no, no, it's the very, very Baked beginnings. Yeah. The very beginnings of celebrity politics has already been sucked into it. And with this increase of technology, whether I mean, with yeah. social media and so on, have we reached a new phase where there's such a thing as celebrity politician? Oh, well, that's a great question. I mean, that's a really great question because celebrity politician, arguably, you might say Sacheverell was in that part. I mean, certainly uh, in the French Revolution, we had Mirabeau, who is this celebrity politician. He's, he's sort of held up as the hero of the people who's sort of getting in there to try and negotiate with the, the Marie Antoinette and, and Louis XVI. Um, you get people like uh, Cobbett. You get reformers. Um, we now live in an age, I think, where I guess renown, as I talked about it earlier, which you know is that that kind of famousness without the the investment in the the personal life. I think that is being tested in new, interesting ways. And being up close next to Boris Johnson when he was um, it was a, it was a history book festival, and he was about to go and talk about Churchill, and I saw him look quite smart, quite dapper. He was talking to his advisors. He was. I think Mayor of London at the time or whatever. And then someone said, oh, you're on in two minutes. And I just watched him in the corner, ruffle his hair, loosen his tie, 
sort of dishevel himself and he became Boris Johnson. And it was really interesting to see that up close. So he can put the character on. He put the character on, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure he's Boris Johnson all the time in most ways. He's still going to be the same person. But he performed to that audience in a kind of cartoonish way. He, he put on his uniform, which is the sort of the buffoonish posh boy. You talk yeah. about hyperventilating when we meet celebrities, embarrassing yeah. ourselves in the, in the, carry, the canned foods aisles. Yeah. Are you talking from personal experience? I have not hyperventilated in the canned foods aisle. I mean, I've, I've certainly bumped into celebrities in unusual situations and been really thrown by it because um, celebrity is so context-specific. Um, we, we expect to see celebrities in glamorous places. And so when you bump into them in Tesco or in the... I mean, I've, I've walked past lots of famous people in film studios where I've been making a TV show or whatever, and you just sort of go, oh, oh yeah, you're famous. But you look kind of ordinary like um you know I've, i once embarrassed myself i think i said hey jude to jude law and he just scowled at me it's like i'm so sorry i didn't mean to do it it's not a, it's not a beatles pun i was just saying hello but it he just that's how it came out it yeah. came out like yeah. i was trying to be clever listen it's fascinating fascinating stuff thank you very much indeed that was greg jenner dead famous is published by weidenfeld and nicholson in the uk and in the u.s after the break, we'll be hearing what some of you have been reading during the outbreak and talking to Adam Douglas about how some of the great philosophical and literary works of all times have been created in the most difficult of circumstances. Welcome back to The Guardian Books podcast. As people all over the world are forced into unseasonal hibernation in their homes, reading is one way to feel connected to the outside world. We love hearing about the books you're turning to at this time, so many thanks to everyone who's been in touch so far. Susan from Canada says, The book I have most enjoyed since getting back from travelling is The Gollum and the Ginny by Helena Wecker. There are elements of magic and mysticism and the surreal, but more than anything else, it is the story of two misfits trying to find their place in the world. Wecker weaves a fantastic tale that, like a fairy tale from childhood, blends fable with moral dilemmas and personal challenge. I enjoyed every moment spent in the Gollum and Ginny's world. The Argentinian author Samantha Schweblin is currently stranded by the outbreak in a small, isolated town in the south of the country where her mother lives, which means that while her reading is returning her to her youth, her writing life is right up to the minute. So it's, something really interesting happened there because I'm reading again, I don't know, for example, Gabriel García Márquez, or I am reading again uh, Adolfo Bioy Casares, books that I loved, but I, I have never came back to them until now. So it's, very, it's a very nostalgic situation. <laughs> I am writing um, a screenplay with someone else by Skype each morning, three or four hours per day. I'm writing a new screenplay with Claudia Sosa, who is a filmmaker from Peru. Uh, so I'm very happy with this screenplay. I'm, I'm in love with the work and it's so healthy to stay three or four hours out of this coronavirus world. I, I, I can't imagine myself surviving in another way. Writing via Skype, now that is creative. And if instead of reading, you're contemplating writing your own masterpiece, you'd be in good company. History is littered with authors who've written great works of literature in the most difficult of circumstances. On the line with us now is Adam Douglas from Rare Books dealer Peter Harrington. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. You have a, a, a particularly interesting perspective on this. 
Well, I just think that um, because we see books that uh, go back a, a long way, we've seen a repeated theme of books written in periods of pandemic and isolation that have lasted um, down the centuries. I'd say that the starting point, is, as far as I know, anyway, is the uh, the Cameron of Boccaccio, which was uh, completed in uh, 1353 after an outbreak of uh, the Black Death in Italy. And that is a, uh, a, a story, a group of stories told by self-isolating Florentines who have gone to their country houses outside the city and they while away the hours telling each other stories. Um, and that is a great model for uh, future story collections like uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, for example. So there's some um, suggestion that um, Chaucer's Partner's Tale particularly is based on or takes inspiration from the um, Boccaccio. Yes, well, he loved Boccaccio and used him as a model several times. Um, his Troilus and Crusade is uh, directly based on one of Boccaccio's works. And he himself, he, he experienced Black Death as a child, but escaped it. And um, so he was lucky in that sense. But of course, all around him, England was plagued by the after effects of that outbreak of the Black Death. So, for example, the Peasants' Revolt that happened while he was living in London, um, that he was certainly have witnessed that. That was a, a, a result of the Black Death. But he, Chaucer has been criticised for being cold to, to, the, to the plague deaths. Do you think that's unfair? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't know about that. I think that um, he had a, uh, a sort of rather typically medieval, realistic outlook on life. And, um, you know, there was uh, this sense that uh, there, were, there was a life after life. And, um, and so uh, perhaps death had a, a different resonance. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So moving forward um, a few centuries to Shakespeare, uh, there's been a bit of a debate which has actually spilled onto the Guardian um, newspaper pages recently about how yeah. much Shakespeare was, Shakespeare's particular plays were A, influenced by the Uronic Plague and B, how much they were mm. actually written during lockdown. What's your view on this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of this comes from James Shapiro's recent book, uh, 1606, where he does describe and, and uh, gives the very specific details of the episodes of plague that came to uh, London. They came, spread from Lisbon and reached London by 1603. And that does mean that the, play, the playhouses in London were closed down. Um, that's, that's certainly true. Um, playhouses were being closed uh, uh, at all sorts of times, but that would have given Shakespeare certainly the opportunity to sit down. And it's notable that Macbeth and King Lear date from uh, the, the period of composition is around that time. There, there was some startling statistic um, mentioned the other day, which was that between 1603 and 1613, the Globe and other London playhouses were shut for 78 months that's more than 60 percent of the time they were shut. So, so I mean, this is interesting because this is plague as a general condition of life. It's not a sort of something that suddenly happens and two months later we're all in lockdown. They were things were being shut down and reopened and shut down and reopened all the time. That's right. Well, it does emphasise also what a what a, a surprising period that was in all sorts of ways. And of course, later when the the civil war uh, broke out in the following in the mid 17th century, that's exactly what they a lot of people took the uh, opportunity to use that as an excuse to close the playhouses down because they'd been uh, seen as a, a you know dens of iniquity. And um, and so it was a really it does emphasise what a golden age that was and how uh, difficult it was to keep the theatres open and to keep that level of 
of composition of brilliant drama going. Now that brings us the idea of um, the, of of um, the connection between plague and iniquity, which we, in in a sort of way, we're seeing in 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 the uh, you know accusations that people aren't aren't um, observing the lockdown and trying to, to to stop public gatherings. I mean that leads to the second reason for lockdown um, fiction having to happen, which is imprisonment because people have been seen to do something wrong. And you you have several great examples of that. Well, there are many, many works of uh, literature, great works of literature that are written in uh, in prison because, it, of course, it's in forced isolation. And a lot of people, I mean, uh, Don Quixote is supposed to have been written in prison. Uh, the Mort Data of uh, Sir Thomas Mallory, again, he was in prison for all kinds of uh, crimes and sat down to write this, ironically, this great romance of chivalry and perfect behavior when he himself seems to have been sort of more or less a psychopath. So uh, you do get that uh, kind of contrast. So coming into more recent times, um, very, very striking ones is Oscar Wilde's Ballad of Reading Jail. I mean, it's not a huge, great work, but but it does reflect on his time in prison. Absolutely. Yes, it does indeed. And I I think that that kind of um, finding time, he also, while he was in prison, of course, he he was drawn back into the past, which a lot of writers find themselves um, Virginia Woolf writes about this on being ill in her essay on being ill, this idea that you go back to your childhood and your past. And he wrote, of course, his his great um, letter to Bosey, um, his uh, De Profundis, his letter. So there are two works he wrote in Reading Jail. De Profundis is perhaps not so well known, but um, as well as this great uh, poem, he also wrote this letter of uh, autobiography and self-revelation. So now what about illness? We, we've got, we've got, um, you know, we've got pestilence, we've got um, pr- imprisonment, and then we've got personal illness, which, which is not to do with a great, a great big contagion, but just to, with, with invalids. And, and that's also has had a great influence, hasn't it, on literature? It has. I mean, one of the uh, famous ones from the 19th century, and I've been reminded of this a lot when, when I see circulated on social media, a lot of I've been sent an awful lot of videos on WhatsApp and things like that of people being kind to animals. And the great invalid who was kind to animals was Anna Sewell, who was um, a Quaker, and she was very concerned about the treatment of horses in particular. And she was a lifelong invalid from the age of 14. And um, towards the end of her life, she wrote Black Beauty, which is a great plea for the humane treatment of horses. Um, And... um, in fact, she saw it published, but then she died shortly after that. So, uh, that, but that book was adopted by, um, particularly in America, by the American, American Veterinarian Association to argue for more humane treatment of animals. And it's interesting how that happens in a period when we're, we're isolated and we're looking at ourselves and perhaps also looking at the way we treat others and the way we treat the wider um, creation. Now, you're a, a rare books dealer. Of all these books of isolation, which would be the one you would most love to get your hands on? Yes. Well, uh, one that we haven't mentioned so far is, um, is, is actually written before the first outbreak of the Black Death in Europe, and it's Marco Polo's. Uh, travels and the first edition of that is now incredibly rare. I would love to have that. That was uh, he came home uh, to Europe in 1295 and he was put in prison because um, he was Venetian and Venice and Genoa were at war when he got back and they put him in prison and he recited 
uh, recounted his travels to a fellow prisoner who wrote them down. And that the travels of Marco Polo is, is the most amazing uh, travelogue of things that uh, people hadn't seen on the Silk Road to China. He'd been uh, trading for years, and so he'd seen things that nobody in Europe had seen before. First edition of that, I'd love to have in stock. Many thanks, Adam, for coming on, and may may all your wishes be granted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Claire. And that's all for this week. Next week will sadly be our very last show, and we'll be talking to Christiana Figures and Tom Rivet Karnak about how the climate crisis is forcing us to choose between two very different futures. In the meantime, don't forget to let us know what you're reading right now and how the crisis is changing the books you're picking off the shelves. Drop us an email on books.podcast at theguardian.com or leave a comment on the podcast page. And as the outbreak sweeps around the world, your support is more important than ever. We all rely on accurate information at times of global crisis and The Guardian is committed to rigorous, reliable news. You can help us provide the quality reporting the world needs by supporting The Guardian at theguardian.com forward slash support podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Esther Poku-Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.